Lawson Aidu, finally, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to SAFM. Good evening, Songezo. It's been a long time, but we finally got it to work. And I understand that for me to get you to laugh, I must ask the simple question. Tracy Chapman wanting to meet Mandela. Tell us that story. Uh, well, it was actually Tata Susulu. Uh-huh. Um, so in, uh, in 1992, uh, it was my last task uh, when I was working at the ANC office in London. And one of the last tasks I was given by uh, uh, the late uh, Mendy Simang, who was the ANC chief rep in London at the time, was to uh, uh, coordinate the celebration of the ANC's 80th anniversary in 1992, and we had a concert at uh, uh, the Brixton Academy in South London. Uh, I think it's now called the o- O2 Brixton. Um, and the uh, uh, concert was headlined by Tracy Chapman, uh, who came over at her own expense. She was on tour in Europe at the time, um, came over at her own expense. And um, when I uh, met up with her at the, at the hotel, uh, where we were, uh, uh, Tata Susulu was staying at the time. He had come over for this uh, event and some other uh, things that he had to do in London. Uh, she came into the hotel, and before she even went up to her room, she came up to me in the reception area and insisted that before she even went to her room, she had to meet uh, Tata Walter Susulu. And um, the one thing that I will never forget is the, the incredibly warm embrace that she gave him when she when she first set eyes on him. And she literally just bawled her eyes out. Uh, that's uh, an image that will stay for me, will stay with me forever. And uh, as I say, Tracy Chapman uh, then headlined the ANC's 80th anniversary celebrations in London in 1992. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, a memorable um, evening uh, at the Brixton Academy. So clearly, you have a relationship with this song, talking about a revolution. What is that relationship? Well, you know, it's, it's partly about that that evening, and you know. Um, Given where we were in 1992, things had started moving in South Africa. Negotiations were underway, uh, and uh, you know the, it, it was clear that uh, you know the song, which is very much you know an, become an anthem mm. uh, since it was released in '88. Uh, you know, it really spoke to the audience that night. And I remember, you know, when she uh, lined up the song, um, you know, the the, the the audience went wild because it was so uh, uh, appropriate for that particular moment. Uh, for that song to be to be played, and she did an, an incredible set. And I think I remember she played uh, sixteen songs in that set. So it wasn't just a sort of you know come on and do you know two or three songs. She played a full set. That's a heavy uh, set, eh? And live, that, that was, in, I mean, live performance, sixteen songs. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was really, really an incredible performance by her. And I think it, you know, for me, it really showed her commitment uh, to the struggle for liberation in South Africa. Uh, she was so uh, well aware of what was going on. The questions that she asked uh, Tata Susulu, as well as myself, about what was happening in South Africa, you know, really displayed a very uh, deep knowledge of the political dynamics in the country at the time. And that was really impressive about her. Does she still ask such questions of this country that she fell in love with? Well, uh, I think she'd be asking some very tough questions right now. And I think, you know, for those of us that were working in uh, in ANC offices in exile at that time and the solidarity uh, organizations and people that we engaged with uh, in those days who provided incredible support for the, uh, for the struggle in South Africa, 
uh, are feeling very disillusioned, as I think South Africans are feeling disillusioned about uh, how things have not turned out in the way that uh, we all thought it would. So I think there's certain tough questions being asked by people who want to see South Africa succeed, um, but you know, lamenting the fact that we, we, we you know, we just uh, we seem to be uh, you know facing obstacle after obstacle in in reaching the the dream and the vision that our constitution speaks of and the values and the principles that guided the liberation struggle itself. I don't get you to mean that Tracy Chapman is clamoring to hug any of the leaders of the ANC of today, is she? <laughs> uh, I doubt whether she would be uh, as, as eager to do so as she was back in 1992. Uh, I think we uh, we have to accept that our leaders have not... Uh, uh, not lived up to the expectations of those times. They've not lived up to the uh, uh, to the legacies of the great leaders uh, that this country has produced. Amongst them, Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, Nelson Mandela, etc. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it, 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 there are hard questions being asked, but I think inside and outside South Africa about where we've gone wrong and what we need to do to put it right. Hmm. 18 minutes past 20 hours, Lawson Naidu, the director of KSEC, that's the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. We're going to take a look down memory lane, or go down memory lane rather, because for the many times Lawson has been on the platform, he has been answering to contemporary issues that are affecting South Africa, particularly the South African constitutional order. Many of those people who have listened to Lawson have decried the fact that he is too much onto the platform. So we thought, let's bring him back into the platform just so that South Africans can actually better understand who Lawson Naidu is, understand his history, and indeed engage him on some of the work that he has done because I think for the most part many people wouldn't know who he is typically they know him as a commentator speaking on the rule of law freedom democracy human rights and all things to do with the South African constitution but beneath that there is an individual who has if you like and I don't think he goes around like many who do with struggle credentials that are worthy of engagement so that we can better understand some of the political commentators genuine political commentators anyway in this space unlike these of today who just mushroom today and then two, three weeks later they come up with a scandal against their name and as quickly as they came in, so they leave. This guy's here to stay. 19 past. After the break, we continue with Lawson. For those who want to join, of course, Johannesburg, 714-2006. Please call. on SAFM. Let's go back to the exile years, Lawson. Let's go back to the time where you were reading for an LLB at the University of Southampton. And subsequent to that, a Master of Laws at one of the prestigious universities, Cambridge in the UK. And then, of course, which is an achievement without a rival or parallel, being called as a barrister at the Inner Temple. These are some tremendous achievements. Your time there as a young man in the UK. Yes, it goes back a long time now, uh, Sangezo. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, I did my uh, LLB degree at the University of Southampton um, and uh, moved on from there to uh, to do my uh, qualifications as a barrister at the Inns of School, School of Law in London. And in order to do that, one has to belong to one of the four Inns of Court uh, that comprise the, the bar in, uh, in, in London. And um, I joined the Inner Temple, and uh, was called to the bar, I think, in 1985. Um, and one of the abiding memories of that time there was, uh, you know, 
as you can imagine, uh, this was in 1985, uh, and there were very few uh, black students at the bar, and uh, of those that were there, most of us were, were foreign or overseas students. And uh, so, uh, you know, it was quite a, a, an intimidating place, you know, the history mm. and, you mm. know, centuries-old buildings and, and the like. And uh, the, the one inspiration I used to get every day when I walked into the library at uh, the Inner Temple was there was a, a, a huge uh, 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 painting of uh, Mahatma Gandhi on the stairs as you cl- uh, walk into the library and up to the, to the reading room. And that was always an inspiration to me to say that there were people of the ilk of Gandhi who, who went before and that uh, w- one can overcome this and succeed even in that place that seemed perhaps inhospitable and a bit alien uh, to what one, uh, I was certainly used to. Gandhi's legacy is a bit contested these days, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, and I think, you know, rightly so. Uh, we have to interrogate history and we have to, uh, uh, you know, correct uh, incorrect uh, uh, assumptions and, and, and issues of the past. But I think... You know, even when that is done, it does not mean that the legacy of the man must be uh, must be dismissed altogether. The contribution that he made towards the the principles of nonviolence, of pacifism, mm. uh, and and so on, I think that have, that have stood the, the the test of time is you know it's a, uh, an ideal that has been followed in 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 many struggles across the world uh, over the many you know the decades since his passing. So it's something that he bequeathed to the world. And we should not lose sight in, in amidst the criticism uh, that uh, that is sometimes pointed the way of Gandhi, that we lose sight of the, the greater contribution that he did make. Mm-hmm. I'll suspend that indeed, because I do want to ask this question. I've asked Ronnie Kuzrils this question on this very platform, and I think he did well to dodge it. To the extent that you can, without, of course, compromising the brotherhood and sisterhood of exile because i don't think we are particularly and especially and fully entitled to all of what was in fact happening there given some of the pains of course one would recall the days of exile i mean one wouldn't have just volunteered for exile but i think to an extent we are owed an explanation if not an explanation an idea of what exile beyond what generally is spoken of and about is about and that is I'm talking specifically to the culture of accountability, particularly comrades holding each other to account. What is it about exile that such bonds were formed? Many of those who were in exile, and when I say exile, please understand me to speak about those who were on the island or those who were underground in APLA or MK or what other military organizations, guerrillas fighting. You were outside the country. You were foreigners, wherever you were. You were engaging in a struggle, and for that struggle to be imported back into South Africa, and for that to have happened successfully, of course it did happen successfully because we are where we are now, there were lots of things that were happening in exile, a lot of which probably wouldn't meet any muster of the rule of law now, but for expedience sake for expediency's sake, was happening there. At times, even abuse. The Stuart Commission of the ANC speaks to that. What is it about those days of exile make it impossible or very, very difficult, genuinely, for comrades to hold comrades to account? That we as South Africans need to understand so that when we call them to account, it is with that in mind, whatever that is. 
No, look, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly important and deep question, Sunkeso, if I may say so. Um, but let me start by saying that, you know, I think those of us that found ourselves um, in, in London and, uh, um, and places like that were, were very fortunate in that we didn't uh, suffer the hardships that people who were in the camps in Angola and Tanzania and the frontline states endured, uh, the difficulties that they endured and, uh, uh, and so on. So it's not that we didn't have our own hardships uh, in the UK. It was a, an isolating place, as I say, um, perhaps not so much for me because I was in, in the UK from quite a, a young age. But uh, uh, other comrades who came later as adults, um, uh, you know, found it difficult to, to assimilate in this strange culture uh, with its appalling weather. Uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, uh, I think, well, firstly, I want to make that point. But, you know, your question about accountability and what accountability meant in in those days, and, you know, I can only, uh, of course, speak from my perspective uh, as, a, as, as a member of the ANC uh, in the UK uh, at that time from yes. the mid-80s to the early 90s. You know, we were engaged in a, in a war for lack of national liberation at the time. There was a, a, a war uh, that was taking place, and in those circumstances, it was accepted, I think, by the vast majority of ANC members, uh, that uh, in that context and in those circumstances, uh, accountability couldn't be as full, as open, and as transparent as uh, we would like to see in a democratic South Africa or in a democratic society. Uh, they had of necessity to be levels of secrecy. Uh, not all information could be shared uh, uh, and so on. And obviously, you know, people were operating underground. Uh, people were operating in, in, in different guises. And sometimes even amongst the comrades who were there with us in London, we, you know, we didn't really know what some of them were doing, uh, you know, what, uh, what uh, projects they were working on and so on. And, and oftentimes, you know, one didn't need to ask because you accepted the fact that uh, the leadership of the uh, uh, ANC had uh, deployed people to do certain things, and uh, you know you trusted the leadership to to do that in the right way, and for people who were so deployed to report uh, to the structures uh, that deployed them. Now, having said all of that, uh, you know one cannot get away from the fact that there were abuses that occurred, especially in the camps. Uh, you refer to the the Stuart Commission, uh, you know, post uh, ninety four. Um, uh, there, was an in, uh, there was an inquiry into the uh, Quattro uh, camp abuses and the like. And it was really, I think, uh, some of those issues that in some way uh, prompted the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in, in, a, in a democratic South Africa was that we felt in as much as uh, apartheid South Africa and its uh, implementers needed to account uh, the liberation movements also needed to account for the excesses that were committed under their watch. So, uh, you know, that process, uh, you know, didn't uh, work out, I think, in a way that uh, many would have expected. Uh, but I don't think there's, you know, there's, uh, that uh, acknowledging the need for secrecy does not um, mean that one can get away with excessive abuses of the kinds that we we heard about uh, uh in, in ANC camps, and I'm sure it happened in the structures of other liberation movements as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I, I never ask this question in any way to disparage the contributions of those persons or the difficulty at a social level of how, why it would be difficult to hold each other to account in the cabinet, for instance, when the history of these two individuals or a group of individuals goes as far back as 30, 40 years in some instances. Because I can imagine how difficult it is at a person and a human level to hold Lawson to account when Lawson and I were together as the only non-white, non-British citizens or students in the inner temple, if you like, or at Southampton or in Cambridge, and we went through SH1T together. Now, if I can overlook one or two things, I think the human in me probably would, but unfortunately it's the consequence of overlooking that thing that Lawson has done or Lawson overlooking what Song has or has done has for people with genuine and legitimate expectations founded on the Constitution. That's why I was asking that question. But there are more questions to come. Scully in Durban is one of them. He's a caller. Colin in Cape Town after him. Good evening. Thank you, Sengazo. Thank you for taking my call. And good evening to Fair Lawson Naidu. Sengazo, uh, I like the way you said it, like... Uh, um, Lawson, uh, hope he stays with us. You know, he's one of the comrades, and I'm sure he's missing his comrades as span. This uh, one question, man. I, li- I like, I like uh, one compliment. I like Lawson for the way he, he, he tells it. Like he, he tells it like it is. You know, go tell it to the generation following. Um, uh, uh, like uh, David Cameron is working on, on the constitution, you know, the change of the constitution of, 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 of to get a new constitution. But I think it's taking a bit too long. And um, I, I just want to know if Lawson is in partnership with him, working underground or whatever, and, and all the luck for whatever he's doing. Stay with us for more longer, sir. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Scully. Always sweet. Lawson, hold on to your response. Colin in Cape Town, let's go. Good evening. Hi, Zengazo, um, good evening. Good evening to your guest. Mm. You know, I like Tracy Chapman. I've always loved this. They should actually, uh, you should have played Drop the Pilot. I think she's dropped all our politicians in this country today. <laughs> what I want to talk about, you know, the liberation struggle. Can your guest give me any liberation army or anybody that fought in Africa for liberation, it's got liberation today. In a democracy, a genuine democracy country, not even ours. We talk about liberation, liberation. They fought in the trenches, they fought. I was, uh, I was on the borders in the 70s, and I've never seen an ANC in a trench. I've never, ever seen them. They were all scattered over the Africa. But they never ever fought in Angola. It was, it was Cubans. It was MPLA. It was Swapo, but not ANC people. So I don't know where they come. They fought in the trenches, which I hear every day on your radio almost, and they fought for liberation. Go back to history, and you'll find not one ANC or South African on the Angola border. Were killed by any South Africans when it was all foreigners, MPLA, Swapos, and um, Cubans. So I don't know where they came. And I've read about what atrocities happened in the camps, in the ANC camps. People were called traitors. They were even martyred. 
and, and atrocities happen, but there are so many skeletons in this cupboard of the ANC and South African freedom fighters. It will come out in time to come. The longer the truth can be, uh, the, this inquiry goes on with the Zonda Commission, people are going to open up a can of worms. We don't even know half of what our Liberation Army fought for and did among themselves. Thank you, Zengeza. Thank you, Colin. Yo, yo, yo. I wish I could respond to this one. There are many crimes for which General Constant von Leeuwen did not account for. Ask many Afrikaners who were in that very same war you are talking about who now have bosses. If you understand the term, you would know exactly where I'm going with this. Lawson, you're going to have to respond to that, please. Let's take another caller. Okay, now we've got the demand. Sakile in Durban, Mamvuiso in Cape Town. Yes, um, good evening, Songeza, and the veteran guest there. I wanted to ask two questions. Why was the SA formed and what happened to it? Because I'm aware Mr. Lawson Knight was part of. And who were the corporate donors of SA? Number two, um, why does his organization, which he is part of, want uh, Julius Malema out of the JSE? Because looking as a layman, I think he was making a wonderful contribution. Thank you so much. Thanks indeed, Sakile. Much appreciated. Final caller, Mam Vuiswa in Parktown, indeed. Yes, thanks for, thank you for taking my call and uh, uh, greetings to you, Comrade Lassen. Uh, it, it, it's a pity, it's just uh, a few moments that one has to say something, but I know you as, as I was growing up in, in London in exile. Uh, hope one day we will meet and talk. But uh, thanks so much for this beautiful conversation, because a lot of things have really gone wrong. I, I, I don't know where to begin and where to end. But at the end of the day, ah, ah, goodness gracious, what a pity. Sorry the, about that, Mum Voice Lawson. Your response to all the callers. Well, let me just you know pick a couple. I mean, on, on Colin's point about the the national uh, liberation struggle, you know, it was uh, one aspect of of, uh, of the, the the total liberation struggle, and I think uh, you know many people like to demean uh, uh, the efforts of Mkunta Rusizwe in contributing towards the liberation of South Africa. I think the fact that so many uh, MK combatants were were captured, sent to prison, some of them like uh, Solomon Mashlangu were hanged by the apartheid system shows the effectiveness uh, of the uh, liberation struggle, uh, of the armed struggle. Now, uh, clearly, you know, we did not win the war uh, uh, that gave us uh, uh, democracy and freedom. Uh, it was part of a strategy that, that forced the, uh, the apartheid regime to the negotiating table that, uh, that delivered that. So we must, we must understand the historical context of the armed struggle when we make comments like that. Uh, in, in terms of Sakila, I think he's referring to Save South Africa, um, the Save South, South Africa Diana, movement, yeah. uh, which uh, operated from 2016 uh, onwards. You know, and uh, you know, it, I think it was a very successful campaign. It was a single issue campaign to to force accountability from the Zuma administration. Uh, I think it succeeded in raising uh, public awareness about the failings of uh, accountability of the Zuma administration. And it's no secret that uh, uh, the Save South Africa campaign was funded from South Africans uh, from all walks of life, including uh, corporate South Africa through uh, business structures uh, 
the organized business formations that uh, came together to ensure that there was uh, financial support for the for the efforts of Save South Africa. Um, uh, on uh, Sakile's second question about uh, the Judicial Service Commission and, and Malema, uh, I think the, 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 the short answer to that is Kasek has objected because of the, the uh, firstly because Mr. Malema is facing uh, two criminal charges at the moment before the courts in South Africa. So surely that will disqualify, should disqualify him from uh, participating in any process of selecting judges uh, for our courts. Secondly, I think the, his behavior last week in terms of the questions that we, he was asking of some of the candidates were clearly of a, 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 a partisan political nature. And, uh, you know, d- don't take us any further in establishing uh, the judicial competence of a candidate to serve on the bench. So it, it's bringing politics into into the judicial selection process, which we believe uh, is inappropriate and should not be tolerated. And uh, it's uh, finally, it was really good to hear from uh, Mambuiswa, even though she got cut off, and I'm sure we will make an attempt to catch up soon. Fantastic. Much appreciated. I think if what we were talking about earlier on today is anything to go by, we clearly are not going to be working on plan A. So let's start thinking about plan B. And after the ad break, you know exactly what to do. But I think at the appropriate time, I'll engage you as to what that plan B might mean. Lawson, I do thank you so much for your time during 2008. Final comment about him, 2007, 2008. He served as the secretary of the presidential inquiry into the fitness of the then national director of public prosecution, Advocate Menzi Similani, to hold office. This is known as the Frini Ginwala Inquiry, Commission of Inquiry. Of course, previously he served in that very same office of Ginwala as special advisor to the Speaker of the National Assembly, this between 94 and 1999. That's Lawson Naiden after the break he takes over because it is Tuesday. Lawson, it's your show from now. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. Good evening and welcome to SAFM. My name is Lawson Naidu and I'm taking over from Songezo for the next 15 minutes or so. And I'm going to get, be in conversation with my guest this evening, uh, Advocate Mosima Rasesimola. Uh, an advocate of the High Court and someone, a young South African who's making her way in the legal profession. Uh, And we're going to discuss all things law, constitution, and of course, some politics. But uh, Musima, welcome and uh, thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you very much, Lawson. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I want to tell our listeners firstly why I've invited you as my guest. so a few years ago, and you'll have to remind me exactly uh, when it was, uh, Musima, but mm-hmm. uh, Musima was a candidate for a scholarship that is awarded annually by uh, CASAC, uh, which is a, a scholarship in honor of the late Professor Kada Asmal, who is one of the inspirations behind the founding of uh, CASAC uh, in the late 2000s. And uh, Musima was a successful candidate and earned uh, from CASAC a scholarship Uh, to go and study towards a a Master in Law's degree in International and Comparative Law at uh, uh, one of the world's top universities, uh, Trinity College Dublin, where Professor Kada Asmal had spent over two decades as an academic, including as Dean of the Faculty of Law there. So, Musima, I want to start by asking you, um, tell us about your, 
your Dublin experience in Trinity College? Um, thank you. So I think another thing that, uh, you know, you forgot to sort of mention, perhaps it, it didn't matter, but just for completeness was the uh, humanitarian award that I also received specifically um, as someone who'd then be, you know, studying under the International Comparative Law, a master's program of Trinity, and specifically in the in the law field, um, you know, and how that experience in and of itself sort of both anchored me in my, you know, particular vision about what a master's program in a field of human rights would, um, you know, how it would equip me and how it would make me a better legal scholar and legal practitioner. Uh, but it's also something that I went uh, to Trinity with, and it sort of anchored me in my experiences from back at home so that when I got there, um, of course, it's it's the program in and of itself attracted or continues to attract a lot of students from different parts of the world. So at any given time in class, you'd have students from other parts of Europe, such as your Germany, um, parts of you know uh, Latin America, like South America, and others from places such as India. So the the program in and of itself is very multifaceted. But I, I think another thing that created a very safe space for me was just the legacy of Prof. Um, Kada Asmal that was still very present in the space, you know, um, and just how fulfilling that was. Um, but another thing that was also amazing about the program itself was just, and I think this also goes to just how attentive I was and how resolute I was about how I wanted to understand democracy better, constitutionalism, human rights, but also elements of governance so that I become a much, much better scholar and just a better human being with a better understanding. And I think Trinity College, with the type of programs that they had under the the LLM program, helped me with that. So you do courses such as business and human rights, and there was a bit of literature from South Africa uh, that we did in the program. You'd have law and risk where we did a bit of, you know, governance and regulation. There was a lot of uh, African human rights that we did, and even judicial review where we treated cases uh, under socioeconomic rights that were decided in our own, you know, constitutional court. Yeah. So as much as okay. the program yeah. was rooted in, in Europe and all that, the South African experience was also there throughout. Okay. I want to uh, come in at that point, uh, Musima, because, you know, what you said, you know, the comparative experience and I think, you know, the interactions with students from other parts of the world really mm-hmm. broaden, w- broadens one perspective of, of what freedom, democracy and human rights really mean in a global context. But I want to bring the conversation back to South Africa because, um, you know, we've only got about 10 minutes left. Uh, okay. And I want, to ask, I, want, I want to ask you a specific question about, you know, how, with that experience and that knowledge that you gained, what is your sense of where we are in terms of a constitutional democracy in South Africa? We, you know, this is 2021. We're celebrating uh, 25 years of the South African constitution this year. Uh, what are your thoughts about that constitution, its strengths, its weaknesses, what perhaps needs to be changed? Um, I think more than anything, first and foremost, is the fact that um, 
it is a living document, right? And what that has essentially come to mean for me, it's that from time to time, you sort of have the forces um, in in our politics and the forces in our legal systems really interacting with the Constitution in and of itself. Uh, you know, the first chapter in the Constitution and how there's the establishment that we, the people, have established this law, we're recognizing it as the supreme law. So in essence, the elements, uh, whether it be politics or the media or whatever, there's always an interaction with the Constitution and it being, uh, you know, shifted and formed into different things. What the LLM program helped me to do is just to wake up from this you know, some sort of um, enchantment with the Constitution. Uh, because I did one course in comparative constitutional theory uh, and, and practice, and that's where we really dealt with a Constitution and what a Constitution is. We dealt with elements such as constituent power, um, you know, and constituted power, speaking about the various institutions that formulate. So bringing it back to South Africa, I think it's a very interesting time because you are you are seeing judgments for one from the constitutional court coming to the center of public discourse and members of society really discussing what it means to have a constitution. Um, I also had an opportunity to interact with works of authors such as your Mohobe Ramose, Tsepo Madlingosi, Joel Mudiri, who are like very great scholars in constitutional law, and even uh, Richard Carland uh, of UCT, uh, in sort of trying to establish the gap between what we have with the Constitution as a legal document and whether our human rights are being respected, whether freedom of expression is there or not. So I think there's generally that discourse that's happening, although I feel like when you tap into spaces such as uh, social justice praxis, there are still significant gaps that are there with regards to whether people on the ground feel the impact of protection from the Constitution. Although we have examples such as uh, Kolobeni. I'm going to interrupt you there. Uh, We need to go to to an ad break in a moment. But before we do that, I just want to remind uh, SAFM listeners that you're listening to uh, me, Lawson Naidu, in conversation with my guest, uh, Mosima Rafesimola, and we're talking about issues regarding the Constitution. This is the Tuesday takeover. I'm taking over from Songhezo. Um, but uh, we also welcome your, your calls. Uh, the lines are open, um, 011-714-2006. You can also send a WhatsApp voice note to 0614-104-107. And if you can keep those voice notes to under a minute without any background noise, We're going to now go to an ad break and we'll be back shortly. Before we go to that ad break, that Kolobeni question that um, the advocate was about to touch on, I really am interested in that. So please, guest and guestee, as it were, respond to that question. That is exciting and that does speak to many human rights issues. I'm licking at my lips at the prospect of that point. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomabete on SAFM. 
We are back. We are live on air. Lawson Naidu is on the line. He is hashtag the Tuesday Takeover guest, together, of course, with his chosen guest, that is Advocate Mosima Rasesamola. They're talking all things law, all things human rights, all things freedoms, and both of them are again are on the line. Good evening and welcome back. Uh, just a reminder, the uh, telephone lines are open. Uh, it's on 011-714-2006. And you can send WhatsApp voice notes to 0614-104-107. Uh, but back to the conversation with Masima. Uh, we are running out of time. And uh, I see Songhezo has uh, uh, attempted a counter coup here by suggesting that, Masima, we, uh, we, you come back to the question of Kolobeni uh, and uh, perhaps uh, just uh, tell us a little bit more about that uh, briefly. Thanks for the indulgence. Okay, thank you. So Kolobeni was actually at the center of my dissertation for my LLM. Like, it felt like a very like urgent matter to sort of write about and to uproot in order to make the connection about what's going on in South Africa in terms of social justice praxis and whether we're connecting to that or not, considering our histories as indigenous people in South Africa and the histories specifically of indigenous people. So I think that it Tolobini captures the reality of what um, happens in the in the lives of South Africans daily from a legal perspective. There's this real history uh, of disenfranchisement that has happened for a lot of South Africans. And with Kolobeni, you map it around the issue of land, where land was taken and there were like brutal wars and, and fights that happened uh, particularly uh, towards the locals. But what that has culminated into is that the people have formed themselves uh, through social movements, and they've clearly defined the legal issues thereof. You know, uh, Advocate Mugai Toby formulated very wonderful arguments uh, for Kolobeni when he used the judgment of the Constitutional Court um, in Maledu to try and, and, and map out the issues to say that uh, an indigenous community that's residing in a particular area have interim protection to their land rights and that that is established in our law and that it also is established in terms of the constitution in section uh, 25. So Kolobeni is interesting in that regard because it speaks to social issues to say you form social movements around an issue, social movements of resistance um, against an industry as massive as mining uh, that our government, for example, supports. But then you're able to meet out what the basic human rights are around it and the types of constitutional protections that are there. So for a very long time to come, I think I'll always hail uh, the case of, of Baleni versus the Minister of Mineral Resources um, as one of the best that ever came out of like the High Court in order to root out the most pertinent issues around constitutional democracy in our country and just how... Uh, the judiciary, for example, or the judicial arm of government can work in tandem with members of our community to further extend those principles around basic rights that really anchor our Bill of Rights in our Constitution. Thank you, Musima. Um, you know, time is, is running out. I don't know where this hour has gone to. But there's one other question I want you to get your, your quick opinion on. Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of another constitutional court judgment last year, Parliament is currently in the process of considering changes to our electoral system 
to allow individual candidates uh, or independent candidates to stand in national and provincial elections. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, start, the things that stood out for me in the 2019 election was the low level of youth participation yeah. uh, in, in that election. Do you think that changing the electoral system will assist in any way in getting more young people interested in politics and in participating in elections? I, I think so, definitely. Because how a young person, in my view, comes to decide whether to vote or not is, you know, issues of, on the one hand, service delivery, also considering where I'm from. I grew up in semi-rural township South Africa. So service delivery is such an important part of it, right? So when you consider that on the one hand, but secondly, when you consider issues of ethics and morality and the type of leadership that you have in government, I think it's about time uh, the issue of alternatives became real uh, in a sense. Um, and, And therefore, I think that is something that would be appealing to young people to sort of gravitate towards. But that being said, I think also, the issue of, of funding, like funding models around these independent candidates in order to ensure that they are, in fact, independent in their very nature is also quite important. Uh, but I think if, if the normal uh, sort of social contract or insinuation of a social contract is, is being sold to young people in a way that really speaks to their issues around your unemployment, your education, and just opening up the space for small businesses and entrepreneurship, then we're likely uh, to see some change or a pickup in terms of the number of young people that are going to vote. So I hope that with, with the time that's left, that's like close to 18 months, that Parliament actually does come up with that piece of legislation that tears apart the Electoral Act in as far as it will allow independent candidates. Uh, Musema, thank you so, so much for that. And and I want to thank you once again uh, for uh, coming on the show and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. I wish we had more time to discuss these things in in more detail, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you very much, Wilson. Sangeso and I are going to continue after the, the nine o'clock news. And uh, uh, are we? Re- um, uh, there are true. many issues to, to still discuss, and I know there are uh, many callers that are still uh, calling through with questions uh, and so on. So uh, we want to now take you to the news at uh, nine o'clock. Uh, Sangeso and I will come back just after the news, and the news reader this evening is. Excellent. Thank you so much there, Mr. Lawson. I do. And thank you as well. I think it's appropriate for me to say thank you so much to Advocate Musima Rasesamola for some of those very thought-provoking points that she has raised. I think on an appropriate hour, she has to come back.